everybody. This is Will Driscoll, the executive director of the Virginia Sports Hall of Fame. And I would like to welcome everybody to our newest content initiative here at the Hall, our Hall Call podcast. In addition to our events and programs that we do throughout the year, our goal is to tell the story of the past, present, and future of sports in Virginia through the voices of those who have contributed and are contributing to the memories and moments that make it so special. Whether it's an inductee, a topical figure, or a group from a unique event or period of Virginia sports, we want to make sure we are providing sports fans from Virginia and beyond with a perspective that highlights the Commonwealth's sporting legacy. If you like what you hear, please go to SoundCloud. Please check out our website, vasportshof.com. Our social media platforms, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, at VA Sports HOF, and subscribe so you can be the first to know whenever a new Hall Call podcast drops. For our first Hall Call podcast, we had the pleasure of speaking with 2004 Virginia Sports Hall of Fame inductee and 2007 World Golf Hall of Fame inductee, Curtis Strange. All right. Our first guest for our first Hall Call podcast is somebody who really needs no introduction to Virginia sports fans, but we'll do it anyway because it is quite extensive. He's a Norfolk native, a Princess Anne High School alum in Virginia Beach, NCAA champion at Wake Forest, 17-time PGA Tour winner, two-time U.S. Open winner, back-to-back in 1988-1989, multiple halls of fame, including our own uh, and the World Golf Hall of Fame. Uh, He's Curtis Strange. Curtis, thanks so much for joining us on our first Hall Call podcast. Well, thanks for having me. All right. So, Curtis, I know that Fox is off this week for the British Open, but I know that you're watching constantly. You know, one of the reasons why we wanted to talk to you this week is because of that major golf tournament. What are you looking for this week and who does this course set up best for? Well, it's... uh it's kind of a complicated question because we're going to a golf course uh, that they haven't played the Open Championship in probably about 60 years. They're going to Northern Ireland to Royal Port Rush. And what a great decision that was by the RNA to finally go back to Northern Ireland and because Royal Port Rush and there's other golf courses up in that area that are fantastic that the world should see and the players should play. So uh, with that said, we don't know much about it, or I don't much about it. I've never played it, and neither have many, many of the players. So it's a it's a bit of an unknown uh, for these players. Uh, but it still links golf. They're professionals. They'll they'll learn it in their two or three days of practice rounds. The 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 one question mark always when you go to the Open is the weather. You know how bad it's going to be, how good it's going to be. Are you going to get the bad half of the draw if it turns bad? So. Uh, you know, that, that's a big part of the Open. But uh, i got to tell you, I think a couple of the local Northern Ireland guys will have an advantage just because they're playing at home, so to speak, especially Rory McIlroy, such a wonderful player. I just think he's going to be tough to beat this week because excitement of playing at home, uh, knows the place, comfortable, uh, and a great player. You know, you mentioned Rory, and Rory obviously is a great player. Then there's no disputing that. But it seems like he's kind of had some peaks and valleys. He's obviously won multiple majors, but I think a lot of people at this point in his career thought he might be further along in that major chase. Do you see him now at his age, where he's approaching 30, as more advanced as a golfer? Has he learned some things, or where do you actually see him physically now, and in his pursuit for maybe double-digit majors? Yes, I, I agree with what you just uh, said. Uh, I, I wonder why he hasn't played 
some better Sunday rounds, but it's a tough game. Um, I'm, I'm sympathetic. I, I understand. Uh, but with his ability, Rory to me is, is the most gifted golfer out there at this point, meaning the ability to hit shots and flight shots and curve it one way or the other and shots around the greens. He's got the complete package and he came on the scene so strong here four or five years ago that you thought, boy, he was going to be at seven or eight majors by now, maybe, uh, who knew, but, uh, he hasn't. And, uh, I think he set the, set the bar extremely high for himself. Um, maybe that was an anomaly. Uh, I didn't think so, but maybe it was, but uh, whatever the case is, he's still a gifted, wonderful player. And I expect him to win more in the future. Another guy who's kind of following the same path just a few years behind, though, is Jordan Spieth. I mean, Jordan, I think you just said it with Rory, is he set the bar, I think, way too high initially. And now Jordan's kind of going through those same those same issues where the putter just doesn't seem to be working. But at the age of, you know, 25, 26, he's got plenty of time. But, you know, people don't realize that golf is is a, is a long game. You know, you can play this per, you know, at a high level until your late 40s, early 50s, and even beyond. But what do you see in Jordan's game right now that has just given him so much trouble this past year? Well, he's, he's a hot topic of conversation, that's for sure. Everybody <laughs> says, why? What's wrong? Well, maybe there's nothing wrong. You know, he set the, again, he set the bar extremely high for himself. Um, he does have a long career in front of him, but does he have the patience to, 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 to hang in there? Uh, and, and, and get it done. Uh, I understand he's going through some swing changes now. Uh, I don't know anything about that. Uh, that can be good, and sometimes that's not so good because you're experimenting with what you can, you know, handle under pressure. Uh, if, is it natural to his, to his DNA or is it not? Uh, all those questions that you're never quite sure uh, if it's really going to work. Uh, but you're right. I mean, he was, he was it for two or three years there. He pitched the ball in the hole more than anybody since Seve or Tom Watson. He was incredible. And he was a tremendous putter and he made it look easy. Long, <laughs> yeah, he did. And his, and his long game has never been up to par with the rest of us with his uh, winning of three majors, uh, believe it or not. And so, uh, maybe he's just trying to improve that. Uh, I, that's why he's doing it. Of course, he's trying to improve it. But will it improve? Uh, we'll just wait and see. You mentioned that the the British is is a completely different animal than anything that you really play over here on the PGA Tour. Now I know that some of the guys will go over there a week or two prior and maybe play in one of the localized tournaments over there on the European Tour. But what does a month or, or a couple weeks of prep for the British Open look like? I know that you you kind of played it on and off in the '80s, but it, it is that completely different style. And how do you prep physically? How do you prep mentally? I think the thing that a lot of golf fans will always go back to is you know Tiger Woods won one of the British Opens without ever bringing the driver out of the bag. And that was a, that was a conscious decision he made on his part, knowing that week that that is what he needed to do. Well, in that particular case, uh, you know, they all, I think just about every golf course over there, I believe has a sprinkler system, but it's never turned on. (laughs) (laughs) Another conscious decision, right? (laughs) If it gets really dry, hard, fast, unlike anything we ever see in the States, they let it play out, and that particular year at uh, where was it uh, Hoy Lake, I believe, that uh, he didn't have to hit driver because the ball would never stop in the fairway; it would run everywhere. So anyway, um, that's the beauty of the Open, and you talk about preparing. 
I didn't play one year when I should have played, and I got a lot of grief for that. And I probably deserved every bit of it. But the, you do need, and I was always stuck because Kings Mill, the Anheuser-Busch Resort, was always the week before, so I could never go over early and play. That's right, because that was a former PGA event, and now it's the LPGA yeah. event. That's right. Yeah, so uh, going over Sunday night, you're behind the eight ball because you have to acclimate yourself not only to the jet lag and the time change, which takes a good three days. So you get there Monday, you know, early afternoon, you've got Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. I never felt great until maybe Friday, uh, maybe sometimes Thursday because you're got adrenaline going your plan, but you know, if you're sluggish, that's no good either. So those who go over three or four days before, maybe a week, maybe play, this this week in the Scottish Open, it's a good, smart thing to do. Uh, not only do you have to acclimate to the jet lag, but you have to acclimate to the different weather. If, you know, we're coming from 95-degree heat here in most places, and you go over there and it's 60 degrees, maybe 50 degrees, and sometimes it's gotten colder than that. Uh, and that's not like that every year, but it can be. And it's just a shock to your system. And to play golf when it's all feel, uh, it's it's – it's tougher than if you've been over there for a week or so and that, and just getting used to just the travel and the, and the, just everything about it, because it's a, it's a wonderful event. Once you get over there, you have a ball, but it's a getting over and back is tough. And, uh, but uh, it's, it's it's good to go early. Trust me. Yeah, definitely. Flying uh, flying east is much more difficult than flying west because you're losing all of that time. And, and like you said, it does take a few days to to get uh, acclimated to all of that. But you know, I we don't like flying anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> I'd much rather be on a boat, right? <laughs> yeah. Yes. Uh, but you know, this is you know the British has obviously provided so many great moments, as have many of the major tournaments. But you know, in your broadcasting career, you've actually been on the call for quite a few of them, whether it was Tom Watson almost winning the Open uh, at 59 years old. But this is actually the 20th anniversary of quite possibly one of the most iconic, for a bad reason, moments in not just golf history, but sports history. And that's Jean Vandeveld's 18th at Carnoustie. You were on the call that day. When he got to the 18th, was there any inkling in your mind that something like that could happen? Because I know that there were, uh, there were some people on the call who, who were questioning his choice of driver. Once that happened, did you have any idea of what you would see unfold over the next 15, 20 minutes? Gosh, it lasted 45. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, not at all. You know, Mike Tirico and I were on the call with Bob Rosberg on the ground. When we were walking, when they were walking to the 18th tee, my producer hit all the, the all call, which is the, to all the announcers, everybody shut up, Trico strange, go. And so, you know, Rossi and I are talking, he takes the head cover off the driver and it started bad decisions one after another. And no, to answer your question, hell no, we never <laughs> like that would ever happen. You know, it's, it's losing the nine point lead with 30 seconds to go. And, and, you know, it's losing, you know, it's just, it's, it's so far fetched. Now I know people say, ah, it's not over till it's over. That's why we play on it. That's BS. It's, it's, he had a three shot lead. He could have played it with a, with a wedge and one. And so, um, but it certainly is, uh, it stretches you to make a call like that. Cause the last thing I think any announcer analyst wants to do, is call somebody self-destructing, losing. I want to call, 
I want to call celebration of a, of a, of a champion winning. Uh, that's, that's what's exciting for me to call, to, to make the call with Vandeveld is difficult because first of all, hopefully you've never been there, but we've all been there. Trust me. We've all lost big tournaments with big leads, but in his case, you want to treat him fair. You want to treat he and his family and fans fair, but you have to keep your credibility and call it the way you call it. And eventually I said, this is the most stupid thing I've ever seen in my life. And I had to make the call because the world was watching and thinking the same thing subconsciously. I had to talk to the, to the casual viewer who doesn't watch a lot of golf and understand a lot of golf. Now I didn't call the man stupid. I like John Vanderbilt. I think he's been the classiest human being since that loss ever, but I've got to make the call. And he lost. And when he went to, well, he went to the playoff and then lost. And, you know, it's just, it's hard. It, it stretches you. Um, you. You don't want to talk too much. You, you, you can't, you can't add to what we saw uh, verbally. And so uh, anyway, we've, we've got, to answer your original question, we've had a lot of fun over there. We've caught a lot of strange happenings over there, but that's, <laughs> I think why the viewer likes watching the open. There's there's some weird stuff going over there sometimes from Ian Woosnam birding the first hole and discovering he had 15 clubs in his bag. And, uh, we had a guy DQ that was tied to the lead after two rounds. We had Vandeveld. We had, uh, we've had a number of things that's happened that's, uh, it's been quite different. Well, and, and like you said, it, a lot of that can come down to the environment. It's just not something that they do. And and I will say about Vandeveld, you know, I love a good, I love a guy with a sense of humor. And you mentioned post that, that breakdown, he, he definitely handled it with class. And this is prior to social media. And I do remember, I think it was a British tabloid. They, they made a joke that he could have used putter off the tee and made it in six. Well, one yeah. of his sponsors, it might have been American Express, somebody else. They, oh, it was about money. Trust me. They, they actually <laughs> shot a commercial where he used putter off the tee, made it all the way in six, got it over the burn and everything. So you do have to give a guy like that with a, with a little bit of self-deprecating humor. And uh, But yeah, I mean, that, that moment will just be etched in just sports fans' minds forever. And you know, I can't yeah. imagine what it was like being on the call that day. Exactly. But, you know, you mentioned that this year at Royal Portrush, it's one that they've played before, but it's now been about 60 years since they've played. The USGA recently has been putting in some courses, some new courses into the rotation for the U.S. Open, whether it's Chambers Bay, whether it was Aaron Hills two years ago. What are your thoughts on that? Do you think that the Royal and Ancient and the USGA should kind of stick with a rotation of four to five courses, you know, the, the Oakmonts, the Pebbles, the Shinnecock Hills, and then maybe once every six years bring in a new one to see where they might fit? Or should they keep going to, to these new golf courses? Because the fact of the matter is, it's like real estate. New things are going to open, and they might be better than what you've used. Well, that, that's, yes, exactly right. And the best example of that was when they started going to Beth Page. Well, it's been 20 years now they went yeah. for the first time. Uh, in that market, New York market on Long Island, on a great big piece of property, it was a home run. So things do work out. But at the same time, sometimes it doesn't work out. In Chambers Bay, um, it was uh, it, it was um, it, it wasn't good, yeah. quite frankly. It was in, it, and condition-wise, you know, you can say, "Yeah, it happened." You know, bad condition golf courses. You know, things do happen. Uh, mistakes are made, or weather, or whatever. But uh, uh, it's just not a good golf course for a U.S. Open for the fans, for the players, for for viewership. 
Uh, sorry to be critical, but that's just hey, that's what you asked me. No, it, it, it was, I, I I think I that a lot like, of people agree with you yeah. on that. It was it was a it was a I tough one like to watch. No, a little bit. But I think you have to do your homework and you have to make sure it's a quality golf course. I'm not quite frankly a huge fan of going back to Marion because it's too small a venue. I understand the history of tradition there, and I love the place. That's outside of Philadelphia, correct? Outgrown it. That that's the course that's outside of Philadelphia. Marion, yeah. yeah. We went down that we went there about ten, eight or ten years ago, and Justin Rose was a great champion there. But it's just too short, too small a piece of property. So anyway, uh, I go into the RNA with Port, uh, Royal Port Rush. That's the golf course that people have been talking about for many, many years. But it's a political thing going to Northern Ireland, and finally they got over that, and that's that's a good thing. Uh, but uh, as far as the U.S. I love the old traditional, but you have to remember for our, all of our listeners, the USGA doesn't go to a club and say, we want to come bring the U S open to Beth page, Beth page and Oakmont and Wingfoot. They have to apply and say, we would like to have it again. They don't, they don't go demand. The USGA does not go and demand golf courses where they want to play. It's got to be almost invited. So that's something that people don't understand. And granted, the ones on the road to understand that they're going to get every six or seven or eight years. I, we yeah. get that. But um, I like going to you know try something new as long as it's a quality golf course. Uh, it doesn't have to have the history tradition. Every every course has to start somewhere with history and t- tradition. But uh, I mean, I love going back to Pinehurst in the day. Yeah, it was it- never a U.S. Open. That was you say. How can it never have a U.S. Open? Places like that are still around that uh, could certainly host the U.S. Open. Well, and it's amazing. You know, a place like Pinehurst, obviously, the iconic shot is the Payne Stewart uh, fist pump on winning it back yeah. in, I think, 99. So when you have those moments and those memories, you know, one, obviously, like you said, the course still has to apply for it. But they have a little bit of sentimentality on their side with the fan base, especially the diehard fans as well, because of those moments. I, I just don't remember. I think the thing that you remember most about Chambers Bay is Jason Day getting vertigo. It just wasn't a, it wasn't a, a tournament that really stuck out in everybody's mind. And, and so, you know, I, I like the Pebbles, the Shinnecocks, the winged foots like we're going to see next year. And I, I'd be surprised if the USGA doesn't punish everybody next year for Gary Woodland shooting 13 under this year. Well, you know, I, I, I thought the U.S. Open this year was fantastic because the reason they shot low scores is because the weather was perfect. It yeah. was cool weather, and there was a marine layer slash fog in every day with no wind, uh, and the, the, the marine layer keeps the moisture in the golf course, so it was a little bit softer than they wanted it. So how can they can't dictate that, uh, much less – Last year, when they had the debacle at Shinnecock with the greens on Saturday afternoon, I was out there walking with these guys. I know how how difficult it was, and they said we didn't we didn't anticipate the wind. Geez, you're out six, 70 miles out in the North Atlantic; it's going to blow every day with no trees. So <laughs> there's there's no trees. It's 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 it's, it's a peninsula in, in, in the ocean. So anyway, it, there's weather dictates the condition and the and the, and the difficulty of it so many times. And sometimes if you don't get the weather, you don't get the toughness much like Aaron Hills. So everybody goes on this par thing and this scoring and they're going to make it brutal next year. I hope they do it this year and just make it a good, fair test. That's all the players want is a good, hard, fair test. And at times they haven't gotten that. 
Yeah. That, that, that's a really good point. I mean, you know, they, they, it's, it's interesting when you see, uh, I think it was Jeff Ogilvie at Wingfoot and he wins plus six. Well, the fans may like that, but when you have a hundred guys out there who it's, it's really affecting physically and mentally, you know, is it a good tournament? And I think you just actually brought a, a good argument to that in, in that, no, these guys still are professionals and this is still their job and, you know, they'll play a hard course, but they also at least want it to be a fair course as well. Let me, let me just say something real quick. And I've, I, I know the USGA guys really well and they're good people, but when these are the best players in the world on a very difficult golf course, okay, get, I, I give them credit for that, but they're the best in the world. They hit it longer and better than we ever thought about doing. They putt so well, the greens are better. Everything's better. And when plus six wins the U.S. Open, red flags go up for me. Okay, yeah. what did you do to make it not unfair, but borderline unfair? Now, borderline unfair is probably okay in a lot of people's mind, and if that's okay in mine, but it crosses the edge too many times. My best example is Marion, 7,000 yards long, small golf course, even par one. What did you do to make it unfair to so even par one? To mm-hmm. me, Marion, eight or ten in the par should win every year. So that's that's what I'm getting at. And the players are quite frustrated with the USGA right now, although Pebble was very fair. But they're quite frustrated because they just want hard and fair, not unfair. Well, let's talk about something that might be somewhat exciting. You know, we we spoke last week, and we just it was right after uh, the 3M Open up in Minnesota, and and you just see a young guy, 20 years old, Matthew Wolf, eagling the final hole to match Bryson DeChambeau's eagle on the final hole, and he's 25. Uh, are you excited about the current state of the game? It just seems like the college programs, in particular here, are just producing top-level players at a much earlier rate than they used to. And then the European Tour, we've seen the success of, of the Europeans at the Ryder Cup the last two decades. What, is your current, what are your current thoughts on the state of the game as, as we sit here today? It's in good hands. I know that. Um, they're good kids and, and you can go all the way to the 30 year olds uh, there that have gotten a little older, but just quality people, nice people. Um, Matthew Wolf to me, is going to be a real stud. I, I love, he's the one with some people thought, think is a, is a, is a quirky swing. I love his swing because it's his swing. He owns his own swing. He hasn't tried to change it to look like the perfect, perfect golf swing. And because of that, he'll handle pressure probably a little bit better over the years. He'll won't go to the deep, the depths of, of despair and slumps possibly. Uh, but I just love his swing. He's a big, strong kid, been the best player at all levels of the game. Then you have the Morikawa kid that finished second last week. Good gosh, is he good. And, you know, they have these, they have already these, these lengthy resumes that, Every level of golf, they've been the best. So why not make that transition to pro so quickly? Look, look at Matthew Wolf's teammate think. at Oklahoma State, Victor Hovland, the, the Norwegian. Victor Hovland's another one. We covered him winning the U.S. Amateur last year. He's going to be a stud. You know, they, the transition from amateur golf to professional golf is the biggest jump you ever make in your career because of the level. But their level of play in these two or three supers you know, potentially superstars is less because they're so damn good. Uh, you know, Nicholas and, you know, Watson and, and, you know, the, the Crenshaws, the great ones went right in like it was no big deal. In my case, it was a big deal. I had to learn how to play a little bit 
and I had to work at it. And the only way to go do it is to go work and to listen and to learn. And it took me two years. Um, two years, I learned more in two years than I ever learned the rest of my life because I failed every day when I went out there. And I, <laughs> and I got back up on my feet and, and learned from failures and learned from hitting poor shots or, you know, just different things. And so anyway, uh, but these kids, they've come right out playing well, and it's great to see, and they're, and they're, they're powerful, they're young, they're fun to watch. I, I loved last Sunday. I thought it was fantastic. Well, you know, you, you've never been one who really likes to compare generations and, and rightfully so, because you do say that the players of each generation, whether it's decade, whether it's every five, six years, whatever that generational factor is, or that time period is, is the result of the environment. When you see these guys coming up and performing so successfully so early, all the way back to even Spieth and McElroy, what, what do you see as the environment? You know, DeChambeau loves analytics. Is that what it is? Yeah. Is it the equipment? Is it the physical uh, preparedness that they go through now? Like, what do you see as the environment that's probably the biggest difference now between, say, two decades ago? Well, I mean, it's, it's, it seems obvious that they have more better instruction. Uh, they're bigger, stronger. Um, they, we used to think, and... In, in my case, you didn't give a kid with so much information because you didn't think you could handle it, uh, be it analytics or knowledge of the swing or just too much information. That seems to be wrong. Uh, just as lifting weights years ago was wrong. Uh, it's not wrong. It's, 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 as long as you do it properly, they're better conditioned, much better conditioned than we were. Uh, all of the above. And they come out and they're – because they've won at every stage in their short career, they're very confident, you know, borderline cocky and that cocky is good. You better believe in yourself and you better think you're the best player in the world. But I don't think sometimes you want to verbalize it like sometimes they do, but that's the nature of the, the, the world now, you know, uh, that's, that's the sports psychologist speak is, Hey, I'm good. I'm great. I impressed myself today. Things like that, that I would never have said, uh, but uh, it's they're just they're just they're very polished at a young age. That's what I'll say. You know, you you mentioned the the wealth of information that they have at their disposal. You know, you, as a fan watching at home, many times uh, we see that wealth of information that you guys in the broadcast booth have at your disposal because you're, we're now tracing shots. You're now showing exact distance and break on putts. Yep. You're showing if you hit it too firm or if you hit it too soft and you got to try to hit it right in that line. As a broadcaster, I mean, I know that the, the tours, they want the people coming through the turnstiles, but I'll say 100% watching golf at home now is a wonderful experience because of that. What has all that technology done to your preparation for broadcasting a tournament? Well, first of all, when I'm watching TV now, TV golf, and there's not a shot tracing line <laughs> on the shot. I'm angry. <laughs> I'm screaming. I'm, I'm addicted to it. And it's, 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 it's unbelievable how good it is. Now we can see where the ball is going. And it's, you know, most of the shots are straight and on the green or in the fairway or close by. But it's, it's incredible when you see a guy really hit a poor shot. That's what's good because now you can see, hey, first of all, these guys are human. And second of all, they do hit crappy shots once in a while. And we just saw it go. So What's amazing is we can see it right off the tee now because once yeah, we see exactly. it's not fading or drawing, we're like, uh-oh. <laughs> we don't have some TV guy telling us <laughs> what he did wrong. Uh, but anyway, you know, my preparation is still the same. Uh, it depends on my job at hand that week. And, you know, when I'm on the golf course walking, which I do at Fox now with the last group, uh, 
my preparation is the last two guys I'm, I'm walking with. And basically that's not a whole hell of a lot. It's just college golf as I see it, as I see it through my eyes when it's happening. Um, I try to have some nuggets out there for him, some different stats and things that might happen. But uh, when I was a whole announcer, certainly I had to have a nugget on every player in the field just about. There was a lot of, there was a lot of homework that went in uh, being a whole announcer. And then as an analyst, um, it, it's almost like on course. I'm calling the shots as I see. I'm trying to, I'm trying to look at the big picture and tell the viewership what to look for and why and try to bring them closer to the game with a little inside baseball type talk. And, and that's, it's, it's, trust me, it's harder than people think it is. Sometimes it just doesn't want to come out of my mouth properly. (laughs) Sometimes I, I we've all been there. (laughs) Sometimes it's all the above. We're human. And it's, uh, you know, I used to look at Tariko says, I'm out of here for three minutes. I'm sick of this. You know, I'm gone, you know, but giving yourself a timeout. Yeah, exactly. So it's, it's, it's different jobs and different preparation, but, uh, you know, as far as the technology, it's all added to golf so much. It's, it's, it's much better for the viewership now. Well, we'll get you out of here on a couple easy ones. You know, Virginia, I don't think a lot of people realize outside of the borders, you know, we have quite an extensive history and legacy in golf. Obviously, Sam Snead, yourself and your yep. father, Donna Andrews on the female side, Vinnie Giles. There's been a legacy in golf here in the Commonwealth. What is your perspective of where golf is currently in Virginia, where it has been and what it might be? You're much more dialed into it than we are. And I think some listeners would really like to know what the future is for potentially seeing some Virginians out there on tour. Well, it, it, it can happen anytime. You just never know that that special youngster is going to come from. But it does start. It does start with family or friends getting a, a youngster into the game, introducing him to the game. Then it falls in the lap of the PGA Club professional, and that's not a that's not a burden. That's a that's a good thing. Mm-hmm. But you know they have to have solid junior golf programs to to bring kids out and have kids enjoy the game. And you have to continue just follow that through. I was so lucky because I grew up on the golf course. Okay, dad was the pro in Virginia Beach, so I had access every day. Uh, and the kids have to have access, and so we never know where that next star is going to be, uh, boy or girl. Uh, you know, we've been fortunate over the years to have some some good players. Um, you know, my hero growing up was Sam Snead. Uh, being fellow Virginia always was, always will be, you know, to me, the greatest swing of all time. Uh, and the best part of Tiger Woods getting close to Sam's record of 82 wins, it's making Sam relevant again. And it's teaching the world who didn't know. And some of the young people that who Sam Snead was, that's fantastic to, to show some of the younger college kids are younger that Sam Snead, Hey, he won 82 times on tour. And how great he was, and you know Vinny and Chandler Harper, and you know Lou Wilson, and go go on and on and on and on. So, uh, but it's it's good, it's solid. Uh, I don't live in Virginia anymore, which you know I'm a Virginia born and raised. You know, I bleed it, but I don't live. I live in Carolina now, so uh, I still stay in touch of everything. UVA was fantastic this year, wasn't it? Yes. <laughs> They were fantastic in quite a few sports. <laughs> yes, they were. 
but uh, I just uh, Virginia's good. It just you just never know when that special kid comes around. But I will say this: golf is getting better athletes. I know that you better be a good athlete if you're going to, if you're going to compete. That is true, and and you see that on the PGA Tour right now. It is it is fantastic to watch just the sheer athleticism. Guys flying at 300 yards now, you know, as opposed to yeah. letting it roll out to 300. It's just and insane, insane what they can do with the ball, shaping it, driving it. Uh, it. It is fun to watch, and it's fun to listen to you and and watch you on the Fox Sports Golf broadcast as well. And Curtis, I have to say, it was an absolute pleasure talking golf with you. Uh, I want to thank you for being the honorary starter here on the Hall Call podcast, and uh, we'd love to have you back anytime. Well, I appreciate it. it's been fun, and to all my friends out there in Virginia, um, uh, you know, I, I think about you all the time. And like I said, UVA, I follow everybody, Tech, UVA, and it doesn't matter who it is. So uh, just because you don't live there doesn't mean you're not a part of it. So uh, enjoyed it. Thanks for having me on, and let's do it again. Yes. Yeah, thanks, Curtis. That was Curtis Strange, 2004 Virginia Sports Hall of Fame inductee. You can follow him throughout the PGA Tour season on Fox Sports Golf Broadcast. And that's going to do it for our first Hall Call podcast. If you liked what you heard, please follow us and subscribe. You can find us on SoundCloud. You can also find us at our website, www.vasportshof.com, or on our social media platforms, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all of them at vasportshof. Thank you for listening, and we'll be bringing you much more via Hall Call in the coming weeks. Stay up to date with everything Hall Call and Hall of Fame at our website. Hall Call was made possible through our partners, ESPN Radio 94.1, WVSP-FM, the City of Virginia Beach through the Convention and Visitors Bureau, and White Claw Hard Seltzer. 